Hello everybody, welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. It's Toby Miller here, and I'm with a new friend, Thomas O'Leary. Hello Tom, how are you? I'm doing real well, thanks for coming out. And out is in the law offices of, and you'll have to correct my pronunciation if I get it wrong, Ropers, Majeski, Cohn and Bentley. Correct. Here in downtown Los Angeles, and I'm very pleased I've gotten that right. Majeski is very close to the name of a major football stadium in Britain, actually, because that's the name of, or very close to the name of the big donor to Reading Football Club. I see. And naming rights are pretty important. In fact, they're some of the reasons why I asked Tom if he would come into the pub with us and chat, because I read a couple of wonderful articles that he wrote, I guess gratis, really as one of those pro bono things that good-hearted attorneys do, Right. in a, a local downtown arts district periodical for artists, right? It's, it's called the Gallery Row and Art Walk News, and it's published monthly to coincide with Los Angeles's Art Walk. Right, which is every, what, it's on a Thursday. It's the second Thursday second of the Thursday. month. And, and different areas of the city get featured in this, don't they? They do, and uh, it's always in the downtown arts district, or the central core, I should say, on Gallery Row, and it's the one night that you can come down and be guaranteed all the galleries will be open. Right. And uh, check out all the art that's there. And so the Gallery Row Art Walk News is a guide to what's going on and kind of talks about some of the businesses downtown. And I write a small article primarily for gallery owners and artists on various rights and responsibilities when uh, publishing art. And does this relate to your practice more generally in the firm? It is. I'm an intellectual property litigation attorney, and generally I'm retained um, after everything has fallen apart. <laughs> right. you're, you're the mop-up guy after the disasters. Yeah. After the disaster is hit, right? <laughs> I, uh, I primarily defend companies and individuals who've been accused of uh, intellectual property infringement, patent infringement, um, copyright infringement, uh, uh, trademark infringement. And typically it's people who are uh, unaware of their responsibilities and the various laws that are out there that uh, use someone else's art and step on it a bit. Right. And so it brings a lawsuit. Yes, I must admit that on one of my websites, I am definitely relying on fair use to avoid having to call on someone like you. But Correct. Anyway, let's not go into that right, right now. Uh, this falls then under the general category of intellectual property, often called IP. And although many of my listeners are outside the United States, the fact is that a lot of the laws that we have here apply in other countries and are part of international law. Even though the U.S. might have an ambivalent attitude to a lot of international law, it likes the World Intellectual intellect, intellectual Property Organization, doesn't it? It is. It's the You're talking about the Berne Convention, right. in which an uh, um, overwhelming amount of countries have signed on to. Uh, but uh, And by way of that, the United States can project to a large extent some of its intellectual property uh, laws into other countries or other countries have joined, but there are significant differences, uh, especially with uh, the European Union and copyrights. A lot of old artists like Nat King Cole and Bing Crosby and people like that, their, art, their music has fallen into the public domain over in the European Union although they're still protected here in the United States. Because right, we had an extension of our copyright duration, didn't we? The Mickey Mouse uh, beneficiary. Yes, there was, a, there was, a, there was this uh, very famous character called Mickey Mouse, <laughs> and he was about ready to fall into the public domain. And so Disney was able to convince Congress to extend uh, the life of those copyrights. And, uh, but when it comes to musical compositions, 
musical compositions have really only been protected uh, since 1972. Is that so? Yes, and so uh, any composition prior to 1972, uh, the musical sound recording is protected, but not the, or I should say the composition is protected, but not the musical sound recording. Now, I guess the obvious one that comes to mind for me, I can't help it, is Beatle, the Beatles. Correct, and uh, what you'll see is uh, Congress, when they enacted that, allowed a lot of artists to reclaim their copyrights from the record companies who were given those rights by contract. And you're starting to see artists, most notably Bruce Springsteen and Billy Joel, who are now testing that law with the record companies who are arguing that it was an improper taking of their property or a violation of the takings clause of the U.S. Constitution. So that battle is going to be waged starting in 2012. Is it really? And is that starting? Can you start something like that in the Supreme Court or do you have to go through New Jersey or California or New York or one of the major right. districts? They would be filing in uh, federal district courts uh, wherever they're located and it would have to make its way and wind its way through the appellate court and then depending on whether the Supreme Court finds the appellate decision to be incorrect or they want to examine it, the Supreme Court can make a decision to take a case. You don't get an automatic right to it. Right. And in terms of just to stay with the Supremes for a moment, as they're called here in the United States, right. I don't know whether they've ever taken on a case involving the Supremes, the musical group. But. I'm unaware of it, but <laughs> I, I know they have cases with a lot of other artists that have gone all the way up there. Right. Stay with the, with the Supreme Court for, uh, for a moment. Um, Whereas we often think of the court at the moment in general terms as being split 4-4, conservative, liberal, with one swinging person in, in Mr. Justice Kennedy. Correct. Yeah? When it comes to intellectual property, is there any kind of bifurcation or split that one can identify? Or doesn't it operate in that classic binary of liberal and conservative that we have in the United States? It's difficult to say. I've never really done a study to see how they have uh, lined up. They usually get... Uh, an intellectual property case uh, one or two maybe a year that they accept and it's on very technical grounds uh, nowadays. Uh, there have been uh, some uh, rulings in the past that uh, bear on uh, I think one of the articles you read was uh, images mm -hmm. and uh, whether or not you can paint someone else's image and take advantage of that as an artist and the, the US Supreme Court did take that case in affirming the California Supreme Court uh, on what you have to do in order to be able to paint someone. Really? Without their permission, yes. The, uh, the case involved a local artist uh, here in Southern California who did literal depictions of celebrities and then would sell them at kiosks uh, in the mall. And uh, one of his uh, paintings was the, th the Three Stooges. And the company that owns the rights to the Three Stooges sued him and said that they were by depicting them literally that he was trading off on their images and they had the rights to do that. And that went all the way to the California Supreme Court and the artist lost. And the Supreme Court said that in order to protect that art, the artist must do something transformative of those images. And the best that they could demonstrate would be Andy Warhol's uh, Marilyn Monroe silk screens, where it was a depiction of her, but he had transformed it by way of his art. Another way to look at it is Leroy Neiman, uh, the famous sports artist who uh, takes famous people but kind of transform their images 
uh, for purposes of his artwork. Now, in his case, he always got permission from the athletes, and it was considered to be uh, somewhat of an honor to have him, uh, you know, paint you. But it's that kind of transformative art that's needed in order to uh, be protected by the First Amendment. One of the reasons why I do these podcasts as Toby Miller and I pay for the hosting of them and all the rest of it, and I don't put them on my CV, is so that I don't have to go through an institutional review board at my institution to get informed consent from everybody I talk to. Correct. Because, because this isn't helping my professional life and I don't declare it as part of my professional life. I figure I can avoid that, that, that necessity. And these IRBs, as they're called for folks listening outside the US, I think I'm right in saying, are basically about institutions that get, in educational institutions in particular, that get federal funding that are required to ensure that where human experimentation is concerned, as it were, um, there is full consent on the part of those who are being talked to or whatever it might be. A uh, slightly different area. Um, I'm going to sh shift, but we're, since yeah. we're kind of just talking all general, um, as a professor you sign off, I would imagine, and give the University of California the rights to anything that you're creating within the confines of your employment. I would imagine that, uh, at least in the area that you're teaching, that might pertain to books or articles and things along that line. Where it has a great deal more relevance and where the battles are really fought is in the area of patent law. Mm -hmm. When you have professors who through the course of their funding uh, create a new drug or a new medical device or uh, any type of engineering device and the uh, universities of course want to be able to market and to profit from that effort and I know that it bristles a lot of professors that they have to give that intellectual property over to the universities. Yeah. But that is, I know, and it's fought too yes, uh, yes. quite a bit. One of the uh, things you might clarify for people that, that touches on that is this distinction that a lot of us have difficulty with who are not trained in the field uh, about the distinction within intellectual property between trademarks, patents, and copyright. Sure. Um, since we just got finished talking with patents, what those are are uh, protection to the inventor who has uh, created a device. And uh, that device has been put into, it doesn't necessarily have to be put into use, but uh, it has made some, it has taken something and uh, from prior art, from prior devices and improved upon it. And they receive protection of that for 17 years. Uh, most notably, you see that in drugs. Uh, that protection is valuable, and so when a drug loses its patent, that's when it falls in and becomes generic, and it's no longer worth the value that they can do it. A copyright uh, protects the expression of ideas. So if you are a, an artist or an author, a composer, uh, even architecture, once the idea has been placed into a format, that has been expressed, you can protect that. And uh, copyrights, uh, now I believe, I think they extended it to 75 years worth of protection. And then a trademark basically protects who you are as a company. Um, Coca-Cola is a trademark. And a lot of people confuse trademarks and patents, but a trademark protects uh, the entity, in other words, uh, that puts out a product so that it can distinguish itself from its competitors. 
And a classic in this that's a problem is when something is used generically that is in fact a particular name of a corporation to the point where that corporation can lose, in a sense, universal exclusive ownership of that. That's absolutely true. Uh, Kleenex, classic example. the uh, other classic example we, is... We have right. to wave our arms, by the way, folks, right. because every now and then, as a consequence of being in a green building, we're thrown into complete darkness. Darkness, because the lights don't <laughs> pick up on our movement here. The uh, uh, Kleenex is one. I believe that uh, Google actually be, would be another one, because people now are saying, hey, did you Google that? Yeah. And so by using it as a verb, it cut, falls into uh, the nomenclature of, of everyday... Uh, language, and so you kind of lose the protection that you normally would have. I gather it's now in the Oxford English Dictionary, which is really a problem. I can recall the many full-page ads in newspapers that Xerox Corporation took out to say, we are not a verb, and we are not a noun. We are a proper name or proper noun. Correct, and Xerox is another one uh, that people back in the day would say, well, we Xerox this for me, and once that happens, uh, you lose that protection. There was supposed to be a moment during the Watergate hearings when the word Xerox was being used as a noun and as a verb routinely, and of course it was being broadcast right around the United States and many parts of the world, when the corporation allegedly got a couple of aides to whisper in Senator Irvin's ear, don't say that. Right. (laughs) Don't tell us to Xerox something. Well, you would still have some protection of it. In other words, even if uh, it fell into the public domain, for want of a better term, if someone tried to trade off of your name, it would be unfair competition under other rules and all that. It may not be trademark, but certainly unfair competition in terms of passing yourself off as Xerox when you're not. In terms of your your practice, Tom, and obviously you're trying to help artists who are not Bruce Springsteen or Nat King Cole or their legacies. A lot of what you're doing is also trying to help people who are street artists. Yes. Uh, what are some of the problems that those two groups get caught up in, typically? I'm thinking both of, if you like, the rock star artist and also the the artist who's living in a maybe subsidized loft here in downtown Los Angeles and painting something. I can tell you what one of the big distinctions is. Uh, people don't realize that they should and ought to protect their artwork. And... Uh, in the United States, it only costs $35 to get a copyright registration. And I think people have a misconception that it's hundreds and hundreds of dollars, which it is not. So as soon as something has been placed as whether a composition for a musician or an artist that does jewelry, for instance, you could file that and get the protection you need on it. And if someone tries to infringe it, you have uh, a great many more remedies that you would normally not have. And people just misunderstand that. Mm-hmm. And, and you can go online to do that. Yes, it's very... the federal government, right? Right, you do not need an attorney. It, it, you can go to the Copyright Office website. Uh, you have a picture or a copy of your composition or, or whatever, and you can send that to them. They will issue the registration. You do not need to be an attorney to do that. You don't need to be an attorney to do a trademark registration. You can do that online as well, and that's $335. And a lot of what I do is advise young artists or young entrepreneurs about what their rights are so that they can do it themselves. You know, I have other work that I can do, but 
eventually down the line, if they have a problem, I know that they'll come and see me. But a lot of people don't know that a lot of this can be done and you don't need legal training. Right, right, right. So. Part of the difficulty here is that often artists see themselves as outside questions of institutions, of the law and so on. They have an ideology about the free spirit and self-expression. And no, I think it's fair to say. And uh, some of them that I've met are quite allergic to thinking about the role of government in what they do. Right, but they still have to pay rent and they still have to get food. And so if you're going to try to be successful, and I would say that even a lot of, a lot of the artists I know, um, you know, are just emerging. And then there are some that I know that have pieces in museums and, and everything like that. Even those artists uh, protect their, their artwork. Um, so people are getting more educated about this, you'd say? I think it is. Uh, it's a matter of not just being more educated. I think it's in the public light a lot more than it mm -hmm. used to be. Yes, definitely. And um, one of the things that your listeners might be interested in, in terms of if they are artists, is what's known as a resale realty. And in California, it's the only state of the 50 states that has a resale royalty act, which means that if I were to sell you a piece of art for $1,000, and in between now and 10 years from now, uh, I've become famous because of that art, and you're able to sell that piece of art for $100,000. You would owe me 5% in, under California law. And uh, that has been challenged an awful lot uh, by collectors who try to move outside of California and, do, and sell their paintings in New York, et cetera. But the California law protects a California-based artist uh, whether it's sold in New York or in Europe, as long as you can, you know, learn that that artwork has been resold uh, for a greater amount. Because uh, can I interrupt for a second? Mm -hmm. that fascinates me not only because it's here in California, but also because it's remarkably like the idea of residuals that are so important in the film and television industry for actors and so on. You know, where right. there's a resale value in a sense of your artwork whenever it is reused in an ad, in an advertisement somewhere or when it's you know, being redisposed in a DVD or whatever it might be. I agree. Uh, the uh, it's based on a law in, in Paris, and which has been on the books for a long, long, long time. And because California is the only state to have it, uh, about two months ago, Congress introduced a bill to have a nationwide uh, resale royalty uh, for the artists. And in that bill, it has a unique ac application. It would only apply to pieces that sell for more than $10,000 and then only to brokerage houses that do $25 million in business a year. So you're talking about large art and you know Christie's type of brokerage houses, <laughs> but at least it would provide some ability of the artist to recover when the original painting is sold. And the nationwide one is proposed as 7%. But what I'm advising these artists who are selling it is when they sell it to have a contract with the person who is purchasing it one, to be able to include that art in any type of a show. A lot of artists don't realize that once they sell it, they may not be able to show it, which you know, helps their esteem if it was going to be a museum. And then secondly, put a clause in that contract that says in the event you sell it, uh, I get a percentage of the, of the sale. And then it becomes a contract. Mm. So. And in terms of the word art here, such a 
such a prickly, difficult word of only three letters. How would this kind of law define that? I mean, could an installation artwork that involves, say, the presence of the artist ever be part of this? Could a dance manoeuvre, choreography, ever be part of this? Well, choreography uh, is notable because it didn't used to be able to be protected because it couldn't be uh, expressed in writing. I think it can be expressed in writing now, which is one of the reasons why uh, you can get protection for that. But obviously a performance piece, you're not going to be able to get any type of resale on that because it's going to require the actual participation of the artist. So the artist is going to be paid for doing it. But it would entail sculpture, uh, paintings, um, uh, jewelry. As jewelry can be conceived of as a sculpture, actually. Mm -hmm. um, music is obvious one. Uh, all of that, uh, well, music has to do it a little bit different, but I'm just talking about the visual artist. It's called the Visual Artist Rights Act. So, right. And so it would have to be the visual type of arts. In terms of the First Amendment, uh, which hovers over a lot of these discussions for many of us. This is the First Amendment to the United States Constitution, which provides freedom from governments restricting speech. It's not absolute by any means. I think there's a classic case, is there not, of you can't shout out fire in the middle of a movie theatre and say that that's free speech because there's no, in a sense, social amelioration or improvement that can follow from your transgressing the words of the government. Uh, in making a false claim about fire. Yeah. And, and the government can also restrict commercial speech to some extent. Uh, for instance, tobacco companies. They can restrict their ability to be able to advertise on television. For a right. long while they used to restrict alcohol, but they've gotten past that. past that. But individual speech is different. And it's really not just speech, but freedom of expression. So when an artist paints something, and it doesn't just have to be an artist, this could apply to uh, computer graphics, uh, the video game industry, that is all art. And there are arguments that uh, that art is protected as uh, protected expression under the First Amendment. And I think what you may be talking about are the cases involving uh, electronic artists mm -hmm. and the football series, where they have taken images of college students who were playing uh, and they were notable for playing on their teams, and put them into these video games that are very popular. And the reason that's an important case right now is because there are two cases, one on the East Coast and one on the West Coast, uh, involving uh, high-profile uh, collegiate athletes. And they sued saying that you have violated my, my image, my uh, persona, for want of a better, to make money. And on the East Coast, the judge said that these games were protected speech, protected expression, because it just wasn't the player. It was the stadium, and it was the announcers, and it was the cheerleaders, and it was uh, the mascots. All of it went into that, not just the image. Here on the West Coast, the judge found the complete opposite <laughs> and focused in on the, uh, on the athletes' images to the exclusion of everything else. And so those two cases are on appeal on their respective coasts, and uh, it'll probably take some time to shake out, but it, it is at least appearing as if it's going to be heading for the Supreme Court to make a determination. So speech is really a bit of a misnomer in this case, isn't it? Well, uh, dance, for instance, mm. um, bringing it to its base level, 
uh, exotic dancers. Mm -hmm. That is protected speech. And mm -hmm. so uh, uh, a government's ability to try to shut that down uh, ha is limited. And because it is protected speech, a government really can only tell you uh, a place, time, uh, where you can express that speech, which is mm -hmm. why you'll frequently find strip clubs all bunched together because they have said that that's where you can have that kind of protected expression. So, because it's dance. Um, so it's, it's an expression, whether it be your expression in uh, authorship, um, your Occupy LA vocal expression, um, or the artwork expression that you're painting. Let's touch on Occupy LA for one second because it's quite an interesting situation, isn't it? Where certain things, I was actually living in Mexico when all the Occupy stuff started. I wasn't here when it was around. But Occupy LA was allowed free reign for quite a while, then shut down by the city government. But can you make any claims about that based on the First Amendment in terms of physical space and occupancy and what's public space? Well, that's eventually that's what they did. And they said that uh, they were going to let them protest and express themselves and they were going to permit it on the city hall lawns. But then there were problems with health there was problems with property destruction, uh, there were problems with children, and so they felt that those problems outweighed their ability to express themselves on the lawn, and that's why they shut them down. It's a First Amendment issue. And generally those sorts of things courts are going to be sympathetic towards in terms of the government on the grounds of things like health, public safety, children's special status, and so forth. Right, that's your traditional restrictions that uh, for purposes of not being able to shout fire in a theater. It would, it endangers the public. Right, right. So, um, continuing on with the First Amendment stuff, we're about halfway through and I, I want to make sure that in the second half you get to raise any things that I'm failing to ask you about. Sure, no problem. Relevant. I wondered if you could explain a little bit about this thorny question of fair use, which I think of as an amateur in these matters, as a jewel in the crown in the United States, but almost nowhere else has really, as far as I can tell. And I'm one of those people who hopes that we haven't even begun to see how broad an expanse fair use might reach over. Well, uh, fair use uh, has different connotations. Um, for instance, uh, being a professor, uh, you would be exempt from, uh, in many instances, in terms of your use of other people's articles, because educational has an exemption in it to some extent. Uh, but if I could put it in the concept of someone who's a musician, what you used to see a few years ago was a sampling of previous songs within various rap songs. And that sampling of that song was very um, identifiable, whether it be three or four notes on a trumpet or a particular vocal pattern and that. And it was being used under the fair use uh, uh, defense, well that didn't sway the courts. And so those artists whose previous work was being sampled were compensated for that. Was The Who one of the groups? It could have been. I, I'm not sure. Steely Dan, definitely. Steely they, Dan. Yeah, they had a, I can't recall what the song was, but yeah. they had a very notable, uh, like, uh, piano line from a song called uh, Peg. Yeah, and, and it was sampled from out. From Asia, I remember that album. Correct, actually. right. Yeah. And so uh, that was used in a, in a rap, and they had to be compensated for that. Mm -hmm. uh, 
I think eventually the, the industry itself came to realize it. So before they started sampling any others, they went and obtained permission. But I want to say that the, uh, it was either the Stones or the Beatles refused permission to be able to sample uh, any of their songs. This came up, I remember, with the Grey album, which was a remake of the, what's sometimes called the White album, but is mm-hmm. actually just called The Beatles. Right. right. And there was an issue there. I don't know if it was ever a legal issue, but it was a debate on whether or not they could do that. Yeah. Right. Well, uh, if if you were to, the Beatles say, if the Beatles were to uh, put out a song, once that song is out, everybody here would have the right to cover that song. You have to pay them for that right. And uh, you can obtain uh, mechanical rights, which are the rights to be able to cover a song. and. Currently, I believe it's 9.1 cents. So if you were to cover that song and you sold you know, a million albums, they would, you would get a $91,000 royalty. Then there's what's known as uh, synchronization rights, which are a completely different uh, beast, so to speak. If you wanted to synchronize a Beatles song into your television show or your movie, you have to pay them that right. And, or commercial is where it's mostly is. And that is not subject to any particular statutory fee. That could be $100,000, it could be $200,000. And it's just a matter of how much you want to pay for the right to use that song in your movie or your commercial. And in terms of the fair use defense that was tried out in this Steely Get Down uh, instance and, and others, why? What, what, what is the basic precept that underpins it? And why didn't it apply to things like sampling? Uh, well, it, it, it didn't apply because you were actually using their tune. You were using the actual vo- vocal. or the Literally act- taking their recording. Correct. Rather than doing any kind of cover. Well, and it was also the same, it was the same pattern of notes. That was a recognizable pattern of notes. And so because you were using that without compensating them, right. uh, it, it wasn't a fair use. The classic fair use is parody. Um, and the the best one I can tell you for your listeners to understand is Weird Al Yankovic, <laughs> yeah, right. who takes a, someone's song, makes a parody of it, and then uh, sells it. Uh, although, in his instance, I have heard him say that he always gets permission from the artist uh, before he does that. I've heard him interviewed. He probably doesn't need to do that because of the fact that he's doing an obvious parody of what these songs are. Or... Um, if you were to take uh, Gone with the Wind, for want of a better term, and you created a parody of, of a portion of that, uh, that would be a classic fair use uh, defense. I'm thinking of Weird Al Yankovic, a classic for me would be his version of Beat It by Michael Jackson, which is Eat It, which is right. the first time you start watching it, it is hysterically right. funny, and that is protected. What about if I were an African-American artist and I took say, a 12-bar blues-based song by the Rolling Stones or the Beatles or the Who or any of these bands, and I didn't just cover it, I literally took some of it, and I said, this entire musical form was taken without recognition or payment from traditional blues musicians in the Delta who were African-American, who were utilizing something with which I have a unique cultural connection. And so I am precisely parodying the white appropriation, in this case a white British appropriation, 
of an African-American cultural form. I'm remembering Muddy Waters once saying of the Rolling Stones, they stole my music, but they gave me my name. Well, it's interesting. The way you, you phrased your, your question is almost like a law school exam. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Going back, covering all different principles. You're on 75% O'Leary. I yeah. want 100%. <laughs> <laughs> so they have, uh, uh, obviously, the, the traditional uh, blues uh, tune, eight-bar blues or whatever, is not in itself protected. It's the manifestation of that which is being protected. The the language that's being put into it, the way that the guitars are being arranged along with the vocals and everything else like that. Um, because that is a rather traditional song, you know, people sit down and just start singing the blues. Kathum, kathum, kathum. Right, and, and <laughs> so that uh, that is not going to be protected, but the manifestation of it, again the expression of it, yeah. is, what is, is what is protected. And this is the problem because it works against, in some ways, traditional cultures and works for, if you like, industrial cultures. It I works, can see that. You know, I mean, that would be the argument. Right. At the same time, the, one of the reasons why copyright is so important is because you can't protect ideas, but you can protect their material or digital manifestation. Right? Their expression. Their expression. The expression. Uh, yeah. I think it was John Lennon who said... Um, Oh, he was talking about rock and roll and said if it wasn't called rock and roll, it'd be called Chuck Berry. <laughs> That's wonderful. That's wonderful. Okay, so I wondered if you could just give us a little burst more on fair use and how far you think it goes. And then I'd like to turn it over to you a bit and have you give us a blast on things that you think people need to know. Okay. How far does, could, might fair use be extended in this country? Um, well, first of all, it's pretty broad to begin with. Um, and it depends on which context you're talking about, whether it's a commercial context or whether it's a private context. Um, and it's almost on a case-by-case -case basis. Mm. If I want to say that uh, uh, Tom O'Leary's cola is better than Coca-Cola, well, I'm able to say <laughs> that, and I'm able to use Coca-Cola in a comparison as long as I can prove what I'm saying. And uh, that would be true, I would think, of, of the use of someone's image as long as that image is sufficiently transformed, you know, because you have that First Amendment issue that's there. Uh, but in, in terms of, you'd almost have to have it on a case-by-case -case basis and to see whether or not something passes the smell test. If I'm an artist and I come to you and I'm thinking about Andy Warhol and his Campbell soup cans, I think a tougher one than his Marilyn Monroe or his Mao, mm -hmm. how do you decide what advice you can give me about the level of alteration that I need to reach? It's difficult. Uh, in fact, the criticism of the transformative test is that it basically makes art critics out of judges. And that what it is protecting is the well-known artist as opposed to the unknown artist. And because these artists are so well-known, that, that in itself is what's making it transformative. But I'll give you an example in a case where it was unknown. These uh, two brothers decided to put out a comic book, and what they did is they took the likenesses of um, the Winter brothers, Edgar Winter and his brother, and of course they're albino and they had these, they had these characteristics, but they had worm bodies. <laughs> so you had the you had, right, so you had you had nice. their, right, so you had <laughs> you had the Winter's brothers' faces and personas more or less, but yeah. on these worm bodies, and they. 
the appellate court in that case held that that was a uh, basically a protected fair use mm -hmm. because it was obvious that these were not uh, the winner. Sony and Avery. Right, exactly. <laughs> right. So it's, it really is on a case-by-case -case basis. Another one I can, I can think of right away is the band No Doubt. It gave a specific license to use their images in like uh, uh, rock guitar video that you can purchase out there. And they only used it and only permitted it for so many songs. But when they put out the actual game, other songs were included and so they sued. And they were successful in that suit because they went beyond the license that had been granted. I'll remember that next time a major selling video game wants to utilize my likeness as a promotional there, tool. Exactly. You can get money for that. <laughs> One of the funny things when you sign a contract as an academic and you're writing some book that's incredibly obscure and nobody will ever read is you must sign away the rights to every conceivable right. remanifestation of it. Sure. Right. Well, that's, uh, again, uh, that's what copyright law is all about. Yeah. I mean, in order to protect that. You may recall that there was an, an author a couple of years ago who decided to write the second chapter, for want of a better term, of Gone with the Wind. Yes. Correct. And uh, they uh, publisher sued to prevent its publication and initially succeeded and eventually lost that because it was uh, taking these characters, etc., but giving it a whole new type of story. I wrote a book about a television series in the 60s called The Avengers, which you're probably too young to have heard of, Tom. Oh, no, it was a great TV show. I remember watching it. Right. And this was published in Britain by the British Film Institute, which had a big library, a big collection of stills as well as TV episodes and movies, in addition to being a publisher. And they had lots of stills, production stills and publicity stills from the television series. So the book came out with... Lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of these stills. And it got reviewed by the New York Times, which is unusual for anything that's academic and very unusual for something almost unheard of that comes out only in paperback. Mm. They're too snooty to review Correct. such grotesque forms of the great unwashed tastes. Okay. Anyway, I won't talk about myself for more than another you know, 70 minutes, but very quickly, just to say that not long afterwards, I got a letter from Canal Plus's legal division saying, hello, <laughs> oh, yes. We own all images of the Avengers. We may well sue your ass. But for now, keep up the work because oh. you're keeping our images and our interests in the public domain. And we like that. Oh, that's interesting. So we reserve the right to take legal action against you. But for now, thank you. Oh, that's very interesting because normally they're not that clever. Usually they come out with a cudgel and, <laughs> and try to do what they can to extract money. Um, the Three Stooges is apt in that situation. There's a movie coming out this summer. <clears throat> and I'm advising uh, a young man right now who has the rights to use the old Three Stooges images in conjunction with the, uh, the movie. And he does t-shirts and hats and things like that. And um, he also, a lot of people don't realize it, but HarperCollins is coming out with, I believe, the 75th anniversary of The Wizard of Oz this year. And all the characters have been redrawn uh, by an artist. And uh, the same young man that I'm advising has the exclusive rights to exploit all of those characters in conjunction with the novel's uh, reprint. 
and they the characters are going to be completely different uh, depictions of Dorothy and everybody as you know them because of the movie. One of the things that I've always loved about that film, and of course the book, but the film especially, is that Somewhere Over the Rainbow was written by socialists like me, mm -hmm. Harold Arlen. That whole idea oh, is, you know, they can be a better world after the Depression. Right, an idealist, uh, right. Absolutely idealistic, but about, you know, working people taking back power for themselves. I mean, that is... And I know this sounds like a crazy leftist giving an over-interpretation of the work, but that is what it was about. Well, yeah, it was, uh, it was about uh, freeing oneself from oppression, I believe. Uh, that's why the Wicked Witch was dead. <laughs> yeah, no, quite so. Uh, funnily enough, um, I've actually been an expert witness in some cases, not for a while, uh, a trademark case uh, and a couple, of, a TV show and a, and a, and a movie. Uh, I never went to trial in terms of making an appearance, but I wrote so-called expert opinions about the issue of is there enough difference between X and Y. This was particularly interesting when it came to things like format sales, which is really a, a ticklish issue in television, as, mm -hmm. you, as you, I'm sure, know better than I do. But, you know, this problem of if you've got a, a game show, say, or a reality TV show, or a drama that is on in Croatia, and this is true of some real, really pioneering reality TV shows, and then suddenly appears in the United States. Who paid for what and how much should they pay? Well, as you know, in, in Hollywood, nothing is new any longer. Uh, everything is being reimagined. Uh, to what extent that reimagination of a particular television show or movie or uh, TV show, but you can't protect the concept of uh, doctors working in a hospital. You can't <laughs> right. protect the concept of police officers in a police station, but you can... Uh, protect the expression, explicit expression of that concept, which is why you have shows like uh, The Voice now, who are trying to emulate to a large extent American Idol, uh, a little bit different format. But it's not, uh, I think there are several television shows that are very popular today that came from England, and the rights to, a, to broadcast the American version of it were acquired over in England and then brought here. And if it's that, if it's too close, obviously you can't, but you can have something that's fairly, fairly close. The Village Voice briefly was able to put up on the website a memo that it obtained from a national broadcaster, where basically the head honcho amongst executive producers said, scour the world for stories, find a means of not paying for them. Oh, yes, right. And at the time, that particular corporation was owned by, or is owned by, another corporation that's very famous for being very high on copyright protection. Right. Well, it, it's important to note that uh, all corporations, all individuals need to police the market to protect their rights, and they're required to, because if they don't, um, it chips away at their rights. And they, it could be said that they're not enforcing it, they're permitting the use of their trademark or their copyrights, and by not uh, going out there and policing the market, you're losing some of those rights. So that's why companies are very aggressive in doing yeah. that. And this is very difficult for individuals to do as opposed to large corporations. We don't have the staff necessary to trawl the internet amongst many other places, do we? Well, no, but there are software programs that can be purchased now uh, that I'm aware of that do exactly what you're saying, police the market for individuals. And I'm not certain quite how they, they work. I know that they are out there and yeah. you can put certain images in. And the reason I know that, it deals with the stock photography companies, Getty Images 
and companies along like that, people don't realize when they download some of these images that are protected by copyright and they put them on a commercial website, for instance, because they like that particular photograph of a tree or that horse, that they are protected. And I know that they have the ability to go and have programs run to see if they can pick up on the web that depiction of their art. Well, in a similar sort of way, I guess I do that with my classes, where I use some software to see whether or not students have bought essays. Sure. Online, for right. example. So not uncommon. No. So we've got about 10 minutes, quarter of an hour left. Uh, and I wondered, Tom, if you could get into some areas that I've failed to address that you think may be important for artists or interesting in terms of your practice or the area more... Generally. Well, my practice is, um, again, as I explained, I'm, I'm retained for the most part to defend people who have, in many cases, inadvertently stepped uh, into an infringement situation. I, I just want to convey to the people who are your listeners who are artists that they really need to start protecting what they create. For instance, uh, were you to sell a piece of art without copywriting it? And someone were to see it hanging in a gallery, take a photograph of it, and then decide to make a print of it. Unless you have the copyright registration, you're limited in terms of what kind of damages you can actually receive. But by spending the $35 <laughs> and getting that copyright, uh, you now have the ability to get what are known as statutory damages. Statutory damages. Statutory damages, which for some infringements start at $750, but for willful infringements can go to $150,000. And you also have the ability to recover your attorney's fees. So if you are an artist, obviously if you can't afford an attorney, what you can do is perhaps cut a deal with the attorney, where the attorney will not bill you until the end of the case when either a settlement or a judgment is received and then take the fees at that point. And that's a very heavy cudgel uh, for many companies because the attorney's fees in a typical copyright case are in excess of $400,000 just for one side. In a typical trademark infringement case, uh, the statistic is slightly higher. And in a patent infringement case, millions, right? Well, here's a, here are two questions for you on that score. First of all, at what point does the artist need to start registering through copyright. At what point in the creative process should they be doing this? At publication. In and other words, when it's on a wall or when it's come out as a book or... Correct. And, and for this is important for photographers especially who might want to put out multiple uh, photographs of a particular scene or whatever. Uh, they can get a single copyright on the entire uh, amount of photography as long as it's published at the same time. Uh, where you see it an awful lot of times is with uh, printed fabrics where a company comes out with various fabrics that they're going to sell out there. They publish it all at one time that way they only have to pay for a single copyright. But as soon as it's published you should be uh, filing for your copyright. And related to what you've just said is my second question which is this. Very often, when the First Amendment is being valorized in public, talked about as a good thing, we see the word chilling as the negative. You know, the chilling effect of the absence of critique or censorship, or whatever it might be, by the state and the importance of free expression. What about the chilling effect of $400,000 in lawyers' fees? Uh -huh. When it comes to 
<coughs> smaller companies or individuals who are thinking of taking on a major media mogul? Well, I'll, I'll give you an example from a case I'm handling right now, but I won't give any names out. Uh, no pack drill. Right, right. <laughs> I won't give names, but it's, this is the, the type of case. The client uh, does wedding videos or bar mitzvah videos or birthday videos and then uh, takes excerpts of it and purchases CDs legitimately, but then syncs that music into the video. Music from the CDs synced into the, into the, the video. video that they're making. Yeah. And uh, just received a letter uh, with the demand for a million dollars because those wedding videos were on his website and there were 33 separate songs, all popular, that were on there because he didn't realize that he needed to get permission to use those copyrights. Mm. And... Um, so when you talk about chilling, uh, getting getting a demand right for a million dollars will will put a crimp in anyone's week. I think that would be fatal for me right. rather than chilling. <laughs> I mean, already I think I've got palpitations just listening right. to this. And there's a way, and a lot of people just don't realize that there is a way that you can achieve and get that uh, those rights for a nominal sum. Uh, there, I won't mention any because I won't promote them. But if you were go online and you were to to type in, for instance, uh, uh, copyright royalties, you will get various websites who, for several hundred dollars, gives you a large library of songs that you know you can use legitimately. Then, and then they pay the royalty as necessary to the companies. So, um, thing you know, things that people just don't realize they sometimes step into, and that's where I come in. But the the amount that you, a, you're being charged with paying, as it were, or called upon to pay, but B, that you need to conceive of being able to pay to an attorney just to protect you. $450 an hour to $650 an hour is typically what I see in declarations from experienced copyright and trademark attorneys. So, and I, I've actually seen it go higher in some instances. So, so, without thinking about this particular uh, case that you're dealing with, but in terms of the little guy, what do you do if that happens? Well, you tell them you're a little guy and that you don't have the ability to pay that. And uh, you try, if you can, to get some advice from attorneys such as myself <laughs> that I know a lot of uh, the people in the industry from previous cases and I believe have some degree of uh, understanding when I call them and say, "Look, uh, you've got this one all wrong. You know, this guy does wedding videos for a thousand dollars." So, okay. And any other areas that you think we should touch on that might help artists or help intellectuals or critics who are listening, who are trying to work their way through this? Because, as you said a, a few minutes ago, this is no longer an arcane part of law. This is something that people think about immensely more, even than I think they did five years ago. Agreed. It's a growing area of law uh, for obvious reasons, because attorneys are attracted to it because of fees that can be generated by it. Um, commercial entities are attracted to it because it can become, in some instances, part of their business plan to sue out there and get protection because they know that they can get their attorney's fees paid at the end of the day. And so there's a, a greater focus in intellectual property 
which is why your listeners need to understand their obligations and their rights at the same time. Yeah. The failure to enforce your rights can be very damaging and the failure to oblige someone else and honor their rights can be very damaging in both instances. Let me give you, if I could, another situation that happened to me, if you don't mind, and you might want to comment on it, which is <coughs> uh, some years ago, uh, I was asked to uh, write a piece for a website, which I did. And I then discovered it had been republished somewhere else and copyrighted, copyright claimed by that other place. So I said to the people I had written it for, do you know anything about this and how this happened and what do you think of it? And they said, oh, we have an arrangement with that other place to share that they can use anything they want from us, but they shouldn't have claimed copyright over it. We're sorry, we'll get that stopped. And I was happy with that. Then it appeared on a blogspot website, i.e. one ultimately owned by Google, illustrated with hardcore pornography. What I've been writing about was not pornography, but it was to do with issues of sexuality and sports. What I wanted to do was talk to the people who created the site and simply make it clear, ask them to make it clear on the site that I did not endorse these images. I didn't mind their using my prose and my name as long as they gave their names as the people who'd chosen this illustration. I'd sought very high-level legal advice from copyright attorneys and got it pro bono. And all we could do was invoke, according to the Google people and according to the people I was talking to, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. And the only way you can interact with Google, the only way I was allowed to interact with Google, was to make a complaint and their simple reaction was to take this person's site down, which I did not want to happen at all. I did not want to censor that person. I simply wanted it made clear that I did not, and I'm not opposed to hardcore pornography, but I did, it had nothing to do with what I had written, and I did not want to make it appear as though I had endorsed that association. Well, the, the advice they gave you was correct. Uh, the, DM, <laughs> the DMCA is probably the only thing that you're going to be able to do and take it down. Um, I should tell you that not I, but others in this office here represent Amazon. So we get those takedown requests quite frequently. And uh, they, uh, Amazon, I'm certain Google, all of them have compliance people that are being paid specifically to, to do what you were requesting. But that's the right that you have if they are using your copyrighted material uh, and uh, invoking that right is there's nothing wrong with it. Right, but what seems sad to me, given that you were just referring to a situation where you could call up an attorney you know and say, look, this is, you know, beating down a gnat with a bear's fist. Bizarre metaphor I've just created. Right. I would like to have been able to talk to this person, even if they wish to retain their anonymity, through Google and just say, let's negotiate this. That's what I find sad about the invocation of something like the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. Well, uh, it's there to protect, obviously, and it's, it's to protect uh, people's copyrights from being misused. Um, the law has a tendency uh, to lag behind technology. and. Uh, the, a lot of what we do today uh, is the result of things that happened 10 years ago. 
So although the DCMA is several years old now and it's been it's been tricked a little bit, the the law just doesn't really seem to follow all of our speed and yeah, and it's right. the best approach that they could come up with without infringing first amendment rights yeah and uh and of course if the person wanted to challenge your takedown order they have the ability to do that through google as well right, so right so that, that i didn't know that and i appreciate yeah. you telling me that because i didn't like the idea that this thing was just removed Right. Well, they're protecting your rights. Yes. Um, no, it I'm... doesn't mean they can't. It doesn't mean it's not going to show up on a server somewhere else. It's just not going to show up through Google. Yeah. Um, just to finish up, you mentioned technology being a bit ahead of us, and obviously that happens not just in the law but in other areas too. Do you see anything in the in the immediate future that needs to be done in order to clarify questions as we get into this hyper digital age? Um, there needs to be some clarifications in terms of patents that they're trying to work through right now. Um, there needs, and you, you can't get uh, around the fact that they're trying to limit uh, uh, internet access for certain things that has created quite a stir around uh, their... Gambling would be one of those? Gambling is one, uh, but even the, uh, just the ability to put internet images up, if a company believes that someone is misusing a copyright to completely take it down. Um, that is a big uh, issue right now that Congress is trying to wrestle with. And the reason is I may want to criticize Coca-Cola for some corporate per perceived corporate malfeasance and use their logo. Um, but then Coca-Cola challenges that and it's taken down. What are, where, where are those rights balanced? And Congress right now is trying to, to determine the balancing act, if any, that you have. Uh, the obvious one was Google going blank for 10 hours or whatever and all the, all the other websites doing the same. Very interesting uh, because we're seeing this incredible struggle going on, Wikipedia too at that time. And one of the things that's interested me right now, and we're drawing it to a close, but uh, is the consumer rebellion against Apple because of uh, the labor conditions of those working for subcontractors to produce Apple products. And the fact that so much imagery that I'm seeing about this, you know, whether it's the New York Times or the Washington Post, is people adopting and adapting images of the corporation to make their point. Right, and, and is that fair protected speech? And there's your First Amendment issue uh, again. Um, the ability of people to even do that nowadays is what's amazing. And so that is what has led um, to the protests with regard to just taking these images down and, and trying to protect it. So it's uh, one of the things that we think needs to be addressed a little bit is stock photography. Yeah. And This is stuff like the Getty holdings right. that you mentioned earlier. Right, and their, uh, uh, their ability to be able to copyright millions of images you know, and, and protect those as opposed to the artist and whether or not they really have the rights that they're purporting to say that they have as from the artist. Uh, they need to tighten that up a bit. But that always, acts of Congress take a long time. <laughs> <laughs> well said. Well, Tom O'Leary, thank you very, very much for hosting me today, for answering these questions, and for clarifying so many fascinating issues for me. Much appreciated. Sure. I want to uh, try to extract a promise from you that you'll come back into the pod at some point in the future when some other interesting developments have taken place that I read about in your column. Sure, absolutely. It was my pleasure. Many thanks.